Hi, welcome to the Axiom Strategic Consulting Podcast. This is Cameron Earhart. And today I'm with Joey Brandon and Peter Erty. And we're super excited to have Peter on the show. Um, he's got an amazing story. He is a master craftsman, an amazing woodworker. I've been following LinkedIn for a while. But Peter, just want to say thanks for joining us. Why don't we start? Tell everybody your story, who you are, what you do, how you got started, all the good stuff. Okay. Do we have enough time for that? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, well, briefly, I'm Hungarian, so I'm not from this country. I grew up in Hungary, which was a very, it's kind of behind the Iron Curtain, you know. It was a very communist country for many years, and America was just a dream as a kid. Like, we, when we saw Americans, we were, like, inspecting them like aliens, you know, like, wow, look at that. There's there's the shoes with the check mark, you know. (laughs) And then, you know, as, as time advanced, obviously, I, I created a situation where I was able to leave the country behind and just go and try new adventures. And one of them was, you know, I was at sea for 10 years Oh wow! for a private ocean search and rescue. And that's why I learned English. I didn't speak any English. The guys on the ship were, that I work with was mainly American, South African, and from New Zealand hmm. and, and Australia. So... Great mix. So then when I retired from the ocean, I had an opportunity to come to the U.S. And profession, I was actually a commercial diver and I was a welder. I worked in a nuclear power plant as a welder. Wow. But we we built all of our furniture at home, my dad and I. And we pretty much made everything. Like back there, there was no Home Depot and Lowe's (laughs) and stuff like that. So when we needed a concrete mixer we made it you know we welded it we put it together so grew up as a kid like always working summer breaks were either with a mason or in a welding shop or in a machine shop or Mm. dad was like no you need to learn uh, trades and then woodworking was really started in our family line my grandfather was a master carpenter and not so long ago, my mom passed. And when my dad was kind of taking care of the property and all the stuff that was in the house, he actually found my grandfather's original master carpenter certificate from 1916. Wow. So I have that right now restored. Actually, it's done already. I just need to pick it up in Tampa by an art restoration company. And we're going to frame it and probably hang it in the wall over here in the office. It's That's cool. A, yeah, great artifact. He also made custom furniture and he also made violence, believe it or not. My mom kind of dropped it on me on her final days that we talked about, you know, her dad. And But anyway, long story short, after we came to the U.S., I decided to not do welding, but do wood. So I started to work in various shops. and. I had a love for it. I just loved doing it. I I cared about it. I wanted to make sure that the stuff that went out of my hands were like, you know, masterpieces per se. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like I never flubbed. Of course, we all have. And I have. And But we fix it. You know, that's we take responsibility for it. So, So back about seven years ago. I had the opportunity to start a business and we did, which was not furniture making. It was basically just selling lumber on wholesale price. But I was bored out of my mind sitting in a warehouse <laughs> waiting for it. And I'm thinking, 
I need to make something. So I, I made, I made a, a piece of furniture. It was a beautiful black walnut waterfall furniture. And I had no tools. I borrowed a skill saw and a belt sander. Wow. It was kind of ironic. <laughs> and uh, so I made this table. And one day, this guy came in. I was leaving the shop. And he looked like an ordinary guy. Just I thought he was probably looking for like some kind of wood scraps or he was a local hobbyist turning wood. So he walked in and he saw the table and he just kind of asked, so what would you sell the table for? And I said, oh, $28,000. It's okay. Didn't blink. I'm like, all right, let's move on. So he went inside. He looked around. He goes, wow, I like this place. So I tell you what, I have my assistant and my designer coming in the next day or so. I said, sure. So I didn't think of anything. I thought it was just whatever, you know. Two days later, I had two people walked in and they asked me, who do, who do we make the check out to? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I, I meant 38, not 28. <laughs> I, was just, I was just sitting there thinking, is this for real? I'm looking around. Is anybody videoing me? Like, really <laughs> the lady saw that. I wasn't really believing it. And she said, no, this is real. And we're about to um, give you a whole lot of more. So then, you know, but prior to that, what was interesting, my kids and my wife, they were passing out these little flyers down in Clearwater Beach. And my kids were very little back then. They were like three and four and a half or something like that. And I told them any house is bigger than ours. You just put a card in. You know? <laughs> and for two weekends, they were out there on the heat just passing out these cards. And I'm not exactly sure how they found out about us, but they did. So that's, that's what got us started. And then my wife has this amazing ability of having no, any kind of back off of calling people or saying hello, or, you know, she's got a Brazilian blood in her. So the chatterbox personalities there, the Southern people love groups and love talking and love making new friends. And she just started cold calling designers, design firms. And that was seven years ago. And today we have clients all over the world. We have clients in Italy, England, Canada, New Zealand, all over the U.S. And we work with probably, I say, 70 to 75 designers across the country and across the planet. And we work with several design firms. And now we're just making a lot of custom items, not only furniture, but anything custom. Like somebody dreams something up or they see something online and they don't know how to get it or make it, then they bring it to us and then we'll figure out how to make it. So that's seven years. That's a pretty quick seven years. I mean, I don't know that we run into many business owners that have (laughs) ramped up that quickly and gone from zero to where you're at now in seven years. Yeah, it was literally zero. Like we paid first month, last month, secure deposit. We had $300 left. And I told my wife, you got 30 days. We're either going to make it or we're going to have a huge bonfire out there. <laughs> we, had, we, had, we had 600 slabs in the warehouse. You literally had to crawl through the piles of wood. And as we advanced with the projects, you know, we got more and more equipment and 
other inventories. We sold a lot of inventories because we had to make room for working. And then we also did consignments. We made a lot of furniture out of it. So it went pretty quickly. And we have a smaller inventory left from that original inventory. But now our inventory lines are so well greased that we could pretty much get any kind of lumber, you know, within a couple of weeks from, you know, either out of the country or domestically. So when you, when you started that first 30 days and you said, we're going to put down first and last, like what, what kind of prospects did you give yourself for success? You know, I don't know if you're a betting man or not, but if you were betting where you say like, I was, it was 50, 50 shot, or was it a longer shot than that? What, what was going through your head back then? I mean, it was scary because having worked for a company all the time, there's, there's always a sense of security because you always get your paycheck, right? But there were no freedoms. So what ultimately created the change is that I worked three jobs before this. And when I asked my youngest son, he was turning three years old, what he wanted for his birthday. He said he wanted me home. Oh. So that was, that was a tough one, man. That was tough one to take to any man. I don't care how big you are how tough you are when a kid tells you that it chokes you up, you know? Yeah. So that's when the decision came and I said, you know, I need an, I need an opportunity. And it came like literally within weeks and I took it. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how it was going to go down. I heard all these horror stories about, you know, 95% of the businesses go out of business within the first year. That was pretty scary, you know, but I'm like, what is the worst thing that could happen? Mm. You know, so we tried and, you know, it was not an easy ride and it's, it's not easy now either, but we have more opportunities, but it was going through my head. We have to make this go right. It's just, that's the way it is. And I say, I'm, I'm pretty good at what I'm doing. Are there better craftsmen out there? 100%. I've seen guys doing stuff like, like, how did he do that? You know, <laughs> I just educate myself continuously and I always love to talk to people. I don't judge anybody where they come from, what kind of woodworking abilities they have. I learn from my guys every day. A lot of guys went through the shop, either apprentice or just came and work. We have a lot of local police who comes in and they do hobby work in my shop. I love working with them. Generally guys who work who's been in either in the military or in law enforcement, they, they're very disciplined. So it's easy to get along with them, you know, because of the discipline part. I try to interview people to come and work for me, but they didn't even make it through the front door, you know, because I just didn't see the spark. The, the guy who works here has to be interested in what he's doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it also, I'm sure it takes being in that shop, you know, with just covered in man glitter. With uh, you know a thousand degrees in there, like it yeah. takes you know not everybody's cut out for that. No, it takes a special crazy to do that, you know. <laughs> but you know, it's it's a trade that I believe it's dying and it's sad. I don't allow my kids to be on electronics. We don't we don't watch TV at home. We don't watch the news. We don't get involved in in all of that stuff. And we rather come to the shop and create something, you know, we make something. My kids work with me. My son was here this morning having issue with a pen he made and we're trying to figure out how to fix it. But he comes 
a couple of times a week, you know, and I tried to pass down what was basically put on me when I was a kid. And back then it was kind of, come on, dad, really? But now I'm looking back and I'm like, I was glad he did that because starting that early age, it really gives you a sense of security and confidence when you accomplish something. And I really feel that a lot of the kids these days, they're on video games, they're playing all these weird stuff online. I don't see the creativity. Like, mm. you know, I just don't. And when I can give, I can give a piece of aluminum foil to my kids and within minutes, they're going to be playing with it for two, three hours, playing street hockey or soccer or something. You know, they figure out how to create it. So, and it's nice to have them in the shop too, because they, they're making really pretty things like this little pen. Show you guys. I know you can see it on the podcast. Nice. Oh, like wow. he, he made this just a couple of days ago and I liked it so much that I kind of started using it. So wait, hold on. Did you buy it from him or did you just start using it? I was about to say, he said, I have to pay for it. I'm like, know your boundaries there, young son. Well, you've managed to, you know, watching your videos and you've got a great, we'll talk a little bit of kind of your social media presence and some of the role that's played in your business. But it's obvious just from watching you and hearing you on other interviews, you're an artist first and foremost, you know, and a craftsman. And I think one of the things that we see in businesses as there's plenty of artists or craftsmen or tradesmen who, who decide to buy their own truck, get their own shop. And a lot of them decide to go back to work after a few years for somebody else, because running the business is much different than being in the shop and being, being creative and doing the thing that they're really, really good at. How have you managed that balance or, or have yours at a struggle to get the time in the shop, to get the time, you know, doing the design work that you want to feed that creative or scratch that creative itch. How have you managed that with running the business? You know, it is a point of, in our business that we try to improve every day because when I'm, when I'm doing selling and design, I'm not working in the shop. That means something is not getting done. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing the shop work and working on a piece of something, then nothing is getting sold. <laughs> you know, so there is a fine balance. I mean, I start my day 4.30 in the morning and, you know, I wake up and I, I come to the shop and I kind of look over the projects that we have. It is, it is definitely, I found it tricky. And I'm not even going to say from time to time, it's tricky all the time. It has to be really smartly orchestrated so you don't, you don't damage one or the other. And every now and then we fall behind on projects. But I feel that when we do, the best thing to do is just to be in communication about it, you know, and just tell the client, he goes, look, this is what's going on. This is what happened. And then they understand. You know, but also I hired a guy now from from the school of woodworking and his is pumped. He's excited. He's got a creative mind. He toured the shop. He was working on a, on a commercial project, assembling Chinese particle board cabinets. And it wasn't a lot of fun, obviously. And when he came to the shop, he literally showed up like two days later. He said, I don't care if you pay me. I, I'm done with doing 
that and seeing this, can I just be here and be apprentice and just learn this? And I'm like, get these guys hungry. He's interested. It would be foolish not to let him, you know? Mm. So I said, yeah, come on board. So he joined me and we've been working together since last September. And he's a good old, he used to be an iron worker. So he's got the, he's got the union thing going on, you know? <laughs> Oh, it's, it's five o'clock. <laughs> no, we don't have that. We have, we have a really good culture in our shop. We, you know, I let them build stuff for themselves. If they want to make extra money on the side, that's cool. You know, we, we, I help them to do stuff because everybody's trying to do better. And I know if they do better, I do better. So why not? Mm-hmm. They need a couple of days off because if family comes to town, that's totally cool. So we kind of get along. I just ask him to be in communication with me about their plan so I can plan my day and plan my week so there's no surprises. To go back on the creative side, it's it's definitely, it's a very time management, like it really have a schedule where when I go to proposal request, I just bang it out. I don't sit on it for weeks. And one of the things I found as a survey from clients is that they ask for a proposal and then they, they don't hear anything back for weeks. Like they have to chase the person to, hey, can you give me that proposal? And my turnaround time on proposal average is about an hour. Wow. <laughs> I just do it right away. And unless, unless it's a very special project, like we had a request from Italy of building something that requires four other companies to be involved in. But then I set up the meeting with them and I tell the client, look, I, I got to involve other companies in, in this project. And then, but I'm not waiting with it. I just go, I drive there. I talk to them in person. I show them the renderings, you know, and that takes maybe two, three days. But average, somebody comes in, I want a dining table. I mean, that's what I do for a living. I don't need to think about it for a week, you know? Right. I can give you a snap answer on what it is because that's what I do for a living. So why do I need to pretend I don't know? Give us an idea, you know, currently what the operation looks like. So how many employees do you have? What's the shop look like? How many projects are you cranking out a month on average? Okay. We have it's three of us in the shop right now. Two of us full-time, one guy a little bit more than part-time, but he'll be full-time shortly. That's, that's the game. We basically start, I start like 4.35. The other guys come in around 6.30. And we go over the projects. We currently have about 20, 23 projects in the shop. Okay. And everything happens through phases. So when we have a bunch of slabs to flatten or fix, then we do that first. And then... We do in the badges of five, six projects at the time because of the floor space. I mean, we have an 8,000 square foot shop, but Mm. that includes the tools, the tables, the spray booth, you know, just inventory storage, you name it. You know, we go through the day, we assign who's going to work and what. And one thing I make as a policy, if you don't know, don't stop, ask. because. I was working in other, other places and people would don't know and they would just unconsciously go and do something else just because they didn't know how to fix right. it, do something. 
they, they didn't want you to know that they didn't know. So they just yeah, started doing something. You know, if somebody doesn't know something, that's cool. The, the bigger bravery for me is the guy who comes to me and says, hey, man, I have no clue how to do this. That's a bigger bravery than someone who pretends to know and then creates damage or even injury because he didn't know, you know? Mm-hmm. So I tell my guys when they come in, if you don't know something, you come and tell me. And I'm not saying I'm going to know it all the time because we are a custom shop, you know? I don't know it all the time. You know, I had a client who came in and we went through the parts and it was an interesting project. And the lady said, well, you know, we have a concern that we feel like you really don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and I said, no offense taken. I really don't. <laughs> the lady looked at her husband. She was like, well, we just paid you $12,000. <laughs> I said, well, it was a great sales pitch, but I said, we are a custom shop. So like most of the stuff we make, we never made before, except, you know, dining tables and simple stuff. But we made a couple of pieces here that was designed by a design firm and he couldn't find anyone to make it. Hmm. And they went to like a half a dozen places who supposed to do what we do. And they said, Oh no, we don't want to touch that. But for us, when something really comp- complex comes in, Oh, we just want to do it. So we yeah. just say we did it. You know, it's like, <laughs> excitement, like we figured it out. So, but yeah, so that's pretty much the routine. And then we, you know, we pump out about between, I say, uh, 12 and, and 18 projects a month. Okay. Smaller, bigger, sometimes bigger projects, fewer projects or smaller projects, a little bit more. It's never the same. It's never such a thing as, so what product sells the best? There's no such a thing with us mm. because sometimes I sell $30,000 worth of dining tables. And then next week I sell $15,000 worth of American flag cabinets. Yeah. So it's, and it's very different. Like a flag cabinet has more labor in it than a dining table. You know, <laughs> it's a simple dining table. I'm not talking about like inlays and whatever. You know, because on a on a on a American flat cabinet, every piece had to be joined per, to perfection, so it's flat, it's square, and it gets glued together. Then we do a lot of bunch of other stuff with it, but you know, it's 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 never really a, a right way to say it. Of this is the standard operating procedure. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So, out of curiosity, you know, if you rewind in your head, go back seven years ago to where. You're holding that check for $28,000. Did it cross your mind of like, this is where you'd be today? Or was it like, what was happening in that moment? Do you have any idea that at some point you would be here? I don't think I talked for like a couple of hours, probably. I told my <laughs> wife and she said I wasn't saying anything. <laughs> I mean, you know, coming from a background where I came from, $28,000 is more money that my dad made in a nuclear power plant as an executive Hmm. in a year. Wow. You know, so when somebody gives you a $28,000 check, you look at it and coming from the background of, you know, it was poor. It wasn't like, you know, back there, like, let's say the term of a middle class, it's not even, it's like, we, we grew up with, 
waiting for someone else to grow their shoes out so we can have it. Mm. Or my mom used to work three shifts so we could, we could pay for the things that we had to pay for, you know, or we didn't have fancy clothes and we didn't go through fancy vacations, you know, and stuff like that. So, so when you got into a culture like America, which is a lot of waste and food and materials and, you know, it's, it's a culture of shock, you know, and, but it's also like an opportunity. Like when I came to the U S I had 500 bucks in my pocket. Like what other country can you do this? <laughs> you know, you can't, you just can't. I know you can't do it in Hungary. That's for sure. I got guys back there who are super talented craftsmen and they just can't break. It's not even worth creating a company there because the government so squeezes you for everything you've got, you know, it's just, they get discouraged, you know? I think you are, you're in a, a good spot just from the timing of where you're at now, where it seems like there's been, you're obviously, if you're selling $28,000 tables, $12,000 tables, you're playing at the top end of the market. The people who are commissioning work from you are probably the top 1%. But that said, there's a whole generation that is behind us. You know, say you and I, Cameron's a little bit behind you and I. <laughs> you seem to have more of an appreciation and, and are eschewing the IKEA particle board type, you know, furnishings and, and finishes and really want, they, they appreciate something that has not just a design element to it, but a craftsmanship element to it. I think looking back 20 years ago, when my wife and I were buying furniture for, you know, our first house, it was, there might've been a design appreciation, but it was like, but the craftsmanship part of it, well, you know, we will, we'll make do with what's available. And it seems like today it's a lot more prevalent for people to appreciate what you do and, yeah. and the time and, and the experience that it takes to produce it. Mm-hmm. I'm interested. I loved your, your phrase, don't stop ask because it, in that phrase, that's not what we usually hear. We usually hear if you don't know, stop and ask, but you said, if you don't know, don't stop, ask, right? So don't go on to the next project, stop. And you seem to have, even in your turnaround times of, you know, one hour to, to get a, a turnaround time on a proposal or a quote, this kind of bias for action. And it doesn't seem like you also getting up at four, getting into the shop four thirty five o'clock in the morning. It seems like that bias for action probably has a lot to do with where you're at now. And how do you, is that something that you look at as a business owner and say, well, that's just what I've got to do. Or do you look at that as a business owner and say, that's what I want everybody in my company to do. And how do you do it? You know, I operate in a certain way. And when you are own, own a business, I mean, I don't know, for me, setting a good example of being in first and out last, it's, it's always like that. Any companies, any company owner I know they have that commitment and you got to have that commitment if you want to succeed. If you just kind of take it half ass and you show up at 10 and then you leave at two, it's one is not setting a good example. And also you're not really being an executive per definition, mm-hmm. which means you're being available. And if you are not there, then you're not being available. So when I say, if you don't know something, don't stop, ask, Versus if you don't know something, stop and ask. I don't put a stop, the word stop there, because it literally halts a flow of production. 
But if the guy's doing something, he's in the middle of, he set his machine up, he's got the inventory out, he set it up on some kind of a platform that he's working on because we don't always work on a table. Sometimes we have to hang things off a forklift because they're so heavy. Then I just tell him to keep flowing. Like, if you don't know it, just come and see me. Let's go see it and figure out a solution for it. And we might spend 30 minutes, but you didn't break your flow of production and you went off on something else. And then you forgot where you were with this. And then you miss a step. And on the end of it, it's a product that's faulty, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by that. I don't require a rote schedule from my guys. I require them to produce when they hear, you know, I don't, Someone who needs to go and answer a communication from a family, I'm totally cool with that. I'm even cool with somebody comes and say, hey, man, I got to sort something out. I'll be on the phone with my wife for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever, you know. And it's totally fine by me because life is around you. So when work is just one element of life, you have kids, you have wife, you have a girlfriend, you have their jobs your family. So when something comes into the company while you're working and it puts a problem in your head that you can't solve, that means that's how much less you are there. Mm -hmm. So I let them handle that present time problem. So it's not a problem anymore. And sometimes I see the guy being disturbed. Again, it's, it's just ability to observe and then think and then act so when I see a guy, something going on with him, I'll stop and I say, hey, man, what's going on? Uh, nothing. I'm like, come on. You're not you. What happened? And I need to make sure that I create a culture and environment where the guys have the freedom to speak. You know, mm -hmm. I tell him if I screw something up or I said something that offended you, I'm totally cool with you coming to me and say, hey, man, I didn't like when you did blah. And I go, oh, okay, I'm sorry about that. Now I do know. So I won't do it again. Because not everybody takes a joke the way, they, you know, everybody takes it differently. Sure. And I'm not a guy who's going to sit there and hold your hand and agree and passing you, you know, clinics when you cry or whatever. I'm not that kind of a guy, but I love helping people. And all the other jobs I've done in the past, people who worked under me, even up to today, I got nice messages from them. You know, hey, man, I miss you as a boss, whatever. You know, it's nice because I genuinely care about the guy who works with me because I depend on him. If that guy is not here, I know that I have to work an extra 40 hours to make up for it, yeah. you know. So my company does depends on people and every company does. And. One of, our, one of our earlier problems was that we didn't have quality people and enough people in the company where we could now have a group of three or four guys that really like-minded, works in the same purpose, pushes the company forward. I had guys who came and apprentice with me, started their own company, and they created their own company and then became a little bit awkward. And then I asked them to please go because now you have your company. And I was at the place where my company was expanding. So I needed more room, needed more inventory. So needed more people with the same set of mind that let's grow early designs. And I want to grow with it. So what is, what is your vision for early designs? Where do you want to take it? 
You know, our, I'm going to say five-year goal is we want to take this company to a stable six, seven full-time employee. And in revenue, I really want to take it to like a medium seven-figure company. And we really want to hone in on the custom stuff. Because I feel like there's just isn't enough shops out there who, you know, who could do or even has the courage to embark on something that they've never done. And sometimes stuff, it's so twisted that if I don't feel comfortable that I could do it, then I'm just going to say, you know, I, I really don't know how to do this. I think I would, I would be just a waste of money and a waste of time. Very rare, maybe one out of 10, but it, ha- it happened. So I really want to take the company to that level of production, level of culture, you know? I want people to do well in my company. I want them to make good money because I remember how does it feel like working for 18 bucks an hour and then you have to work two other jobs after that. Mm-hmm. It's not fun. And you can't really upkeep a family with, I believe, with the current wages, you know? Just no way. I mean, look at the gas prices. Fueling up my truck is $233. <laughs> I know. I feel your pain. It sounds like our trucks are similar in size. <laughs> I'm going to be biking to work soon. <laughs> what's, the, what's it like? I mean, it, I, I love what you said about really honing in on the custom stuff because I could, I could imagine that some business owners in your situation might find a product that is profitable, that has uh, you know high demand in the moment, and you think, man, we could just crank these out, right? And and there's you know scaling a business. How do, what does it look like to scale this? And that is the opposite of custom work. That is, we have to continue. So, what's the push pull for you? Because there's there's got to be some things. We'll talk a little bit here. You can share the story of the American flag because that's another great kind of story. Like. Why not just produce American flag? So tell us where the flag came from, what it is, and, and share that story with us. Yeah. First, uh, one thing I forgot to mention earlier, like we do make like the $28,000 furniture, but our general, I say the majority of our work is not that. We have one of those clients come in maybe once a month who just doesn't care what it costs, but they want it and they want to love it and they want that in their space, you know? So, but as far as scalability, it's very interesting you asked me that. About a year ago, I hired a consultant, you know, I was like, how do I, how do I grow? Because I don't know everything about business. I mean, especially not in corporate America, you know? Coming here, not knowing all that, like how do you scale a business? The two things I learned is one, you need a product that you can produce in bigger quantities and two you need people so we start to work on the people part and we also start working on scalable products the flags are one of them and we actually in the process of creating a branch of early designs which is the giftables and we create custom cigar cases Hmm. that are pretty high end it's on our website as well you could see that now, the problem is that there's only one size on the cigar cases. So we, I did a survey, and I, asked, I made a cigar case for some really high-end people. We made some for Tom Brady, for Damon John, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Ron Harper, 
you know, to name a few of these celebrities and, and also some other people who are really good at product development. And I asked him to, to give me some feedback. And one of the feedback came back that was too small, you know, but that is the only hardware available in the country. Hmm. So we designed our own hardware, which is right now with the company who produces the prototypes. And we actually have a prototype now and it's being produced in a larger quantity so we can actually up our cigar case game. And the cigar cases are made really beautifully. It's customizable. We laser engraved names and logos on it, made some for six hour for a marketing person in six hour. And then we made some for various corporate gifting companies. And it's the same with the pens. You know, my son made friends with one of the pro football players in a hotel in Sarasota because my son is all into football. He's really, I don't know how he knows everything about football because we don't watch TV, but he just, he just knows it. I don't even know the rules, to be honest with you. I really don't. So, but anyway, so, and one of the things we also trying to do is to basically make the pens and have that part of as a giftable, you know, and create little gift boxes with the cigar cases, with the pens, laser engraved them. So these are scalable products. And we are in negotiation with a couple of firms about making them what would be the wholesale price, how much could we do. I mean, it's just so much to it, so much to this product development. It's, it's pretty extensive, but that's what we're trying to do on the scalability part. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So a little shameless plug for you. I mean, with Father's Day coming up, pens, <laughs> those American flags, those cigar cases. I mean, if you're yeah. listening and you need a gift, yeah. that's <laughs> those are some sweet gifts. Hopefully my wife is gonna listen to this. And <laughs> but going back to the the custom side real quick, just out of you know, curiosity, what do you enjoy more when a client comes to you with a project and has it all outlined and says, you know, can you make this? And it's difficult, it's complex. And you, you go to take that or when they come to you and they say, you know, kind of hand you a blank canvas and they say, Hey, this is the type of furniture I want, but you know, work your magic. Like which, which one do you prefer more? If I listen to my heart, I like the blank canvas. Yeah. Cause then you can create, right. And then my guys can create. And I tell you this, anybody who works in this environment is an artist at heart and nothing makes you happier when you, you got to put your mind and your abilities to work. I don't mind making other people's ideas. In fact, I love them because it's a twofold effect. One that you create makes you happy because you created it. But when you create something for someone else, someone else's reality, and you see the effect that your handiwork created on that person, it's another fold. I equally like both because at the end of the day, our valuable final product as a company is to create well-designed, well-constructed, beautiful art pieces that's functional and elevates the customer on an emotional level. Mm. Because what I tell people, if you go into an office that's poorly designed, poorly painted, poorly lit, poorly organized, you go into a total disbursement as a person. You can't even function in that as a person. 
when you go into an office that's beautifully made, beautifully painted, lit, organized, it's a joy to go to work. And I did a very nice office for a client of mine. He actually loved it so much. He created a professionally shot testimonial video, which is on our YouTube channel. And we created this, probably one of the most beautiful pieces we've ever made. The, the piece that we made the, the table from was literally a salvage. And when we, start, when we start working on it, we were like, holy cow, look at this thing. You know, like it was so many things in there. But after we installed it, the employees of the person was giving me the feedback that the boss is happier. He goes to work and he's like, he's got the butterflies going on before he opens his door. <laughs> and it's been for three years and it's like that every day. That's so funny. he didn't change. He, and when he's got guests coming to his, to his office, I mean, he says it in the video, they stop and they go, wow, I'm like, where did you get this? How did you even, you know? So it also got something to do with personal pride and a level of professionalism when somebody comes to you and you have an office that's like somebody just want to sit down and give you a $50 million contract and just sign it, you know, <laughs> that's how your place looks like. And you're like, wow, these guys for real, you know? Yeah. It makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned social media on there and you know, I, that's how I got connected with you. I saw one of your videos on LinkedIn. And, and I've always just been a huge fan of, of woodworking. I was just blown away by the stuff you were creating. And then I started seeing these videos of, you know, kind of these client testimonial videos. You you reveal, you take off the cover and they're just in shock. They're in, in amazement and their reactions are priceless. It's, it's really incredible to watch. Anybody listening would highly recommend going and finding Erdy Designs, Peter Erdy, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, all the social media. But you also post some really cool videos of your sons in the shop with you. Yeah. And you mentioned that earlier. And so that's just, you know, for me, those are all, I love those because I love seeing, I don't even know how old your sons are, but I love seeing that passion in them. And then just that father-son dynamic of you getting to stand beside them and teach them and work on a project together. So yeah. tell us a little bit about just what that's been like. And then alongside that, just overall idea of how social media has helped your business grow. Yeah. Well, my son... They're 10 and 12. The youngest is 10 and the oldest is, is 12. About a year and a half ago, I asked him, what do you want for your birthday? And he said, well, I don't know. I'd like to, I'd like to create my own business. I was like, wow. Okay. So we were kind of looking around. What could he do? I had so much wood left over from projects. And I didn't have a heart to throw them away. Because some of these inventory we have is just so beautiful. But it was, also, it was also a burden because you only have so much room. So I'm like, what do we do with this? And then one of my friends came in. He's a turner. He turns. And he said, well, you could, you could make things out of wood and turn them. I said, how about pens? And I said, well, can you show me how to do it? He's like, sure. So he showed me, and it seemed pretty simple. And I said, do you think my 12-year-old son, well, he was 11 at the time, could learn this? And he said, yeah. So I called him in. I showed him. And he loved it. He said, damn, this is so cool. So he started making it. And both of my kids were learning how to turn. But my oldest son was more into it with the hands and turning. My youngest is a little bit more tacky. Like he likes to, 
like computers and laser. And, you know, it's like, so he started doing the laser engraving. That's how it came about. I remember we did a video, the very first one in the office. He just banged out a bunch of pens. And, you know, when you see that, the accomplishments in his face and the happiness and like, hey, dad, let me surprise you. And then it gives you some really beautiful pen. And you look at it and it's from an 11 year old. And I'm like, come on. I mean, yeah. what, what is the definition of happiness? You know, <laughs> <laughs> not really. And so we did this video and I put it on LinkedIn and within Seven days, he had like six thousand dollars worth of orders. Wow, <laughs> that's awesome! And I went to went to school, which is five minutes up the street from me, at two o'clock. And I told the teacher I need him to come to the shop. And the teacher said, "Well, school doesn't end until four. And I said, "I don't care. He's going to make he's, he's dropping out." So that's how it started. That, and then my youngest one was kind of didn't really. Probably because he's shorter, he couldn't really work the lathe. So we started doing laser engraving with him, and he really loved that. And they both started to make stuff for Mother's Day, Father's Day. Having that common reality of working in the shop, and it's not air conditioned, and they seeing me doing what I'm doing. I mean, there's no day go by when they would thank me for working. <laughs> like we, we say a prayer every day at dinner and it's always part of the prayer. I want to thank dad for working hard. And mm -hmm. I don't know if really every family hears that, but that assurance, it really motivates you as a parent and even through hard times, which is not always easy, you know, and it gives you that extra little boost and it kind of really works the dynamics in the family. It's great. It's, you know, if anybody has the chance to, get their kids involved in their business, please do. You will be glad you did. You know, it's just one of those moments that you just can't put a price tag on. I like, uh, you said you alluded to this earlier, but just the importance of knowing a trade, knowing a skill. And I think that one of the things you've hinted on or you, and you've talked explicitly about just now was what that does for, for kids as they're developing from a maturity aspect, but also from just a huge confidence aspect. When you're building something and you can stand back and look at it and say, I built that, you don't necessarily, I'm sure your kids get a thrill out of dad saying, man, what a beautiful pen, you know, what a, what a beautiful job you did and what a great design that you were able to put in here. But they also, they don't, it's, it's not all dependent on your approval. At some point they get to look at the work of their own hands and say, man, I did that. And a kid who knows that, who learns that 10, 20, 30 years later is able to like, Hey, I've done this before. So I'm going to go try to try to do this thing I've never done. And I think that that speaks to your influence on them. But also, I think it also ties into the, the custom work that you like to do. You know, like you've got the, it takes a lot of confidence to be like, I don't know how we're going to do that, but six other shops have said no, <laughs> and we're going to build it, right? And we don't know how, but we're going to we're going to do it. So that's that's really neat how your kids are learning that type of self confidence from the trade. And I think the generation, you know, we're we're entering a a period where a lot of the clients that we work with are struggling to fill skilled trade positions from HVAC technicians to yeah. master mechanics. 
So it's great that your kids at least are are learning the value of the trade. I think every generation should. I wish shop class was still part of middle school. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, we had we had shop class, and you know, I I actually my dad sent me to a vocational school, and we had to learn like the way the the school went is one week we learned like the theory administrative part of the job, and then the next week we would be putting it into work. And I, I, I had a privilege to go to a school that was built by a nuclear power plant because the power plant realized in about 15 years, we, we're going to have no technicians. Mm-hmm. So they look at the lifespan of the nuclear power plant. And this was in the 80s and it's still running, you know. And they were like, we're going to need technicians. We're going to need maintenance crew. We're going to need engineers. We're going to need physicists. We're going to need administrative personnel. So the school that I went to, we had a very few teachers, like maybe history and math. and But all the other teachers, the, the physics and mechanicals, they were all engineers from the nuclear power plant. So they were very practical. And when we finished school, you know, and summer came around, the thing to do was for me is that I would go for a month or two and work with a shop or work with some kind of a trade. And that's what built the confidence in me that I was able to do it. And, you know, obviously, I mean, you need to educate yourself as well. I never stopped reading books that's connected to my trade or finishing or anything to do with what I'm doing, because there's always something better and something new out there, you know? So I tell the same thing to my kids. They have screen time where they could watch educational videos or something that improves their ability to build something or create something. And anything that builds the ability of the person, I think it's a valid therapy because it's educational. So it gives you knowledge. It gives you self-confidence. It gives you interest versus, I don't know, doing something online that, you know, war and shooting and whatever they do out there. I don't know. I'm not really on that zone, but I'm sure there's plenty. Well, you told us a story before we started recording about what happened to your business when COVID hit in March of 2020. And that was a pretty scary time for a lot of businesses. I imagine you were in the same boat. Yeah. No, we were. And as I said, we did the flags. So that was one thing that we... And for those who don't know, haven't seen these, these are wall-hanging concealed gun safes and they're beautifully done in, the, in an American flag. And so you, you created, uh, why did you create the first one? What was the, what was well, the, I created the flag. The very first one was a flag. And then trying to think how did the American cabinet came about? I think I saw one that was dropping down or something like it was a different system. And I thought, Hey, maybe I make one that's a cabinet. So then I made it and a friend of mine came and he was a, he's a retired Navy SEAL. And he said, well, make sure you check with your attorney. Cause <laughs> I'm like, Oh, good point. So we have to call an Amer- American flag concealed cabinet. And when I first posted it, man, it was a lot of response to that and all kinds of mixed feelings about it. And some people were attacking me that I was advocating gun violence and blah, blah, blah. And I literally had a lady who was just like on me, man. She would just not ease off. And 
And I'm like, well, I'm onto something. I mean, this is, you know, but I say 85% of the people loved it. And I would just kept handling her. You did this and you did that. And I told the lady like on, on the, on the stream, I said, look, you can put your bourbon and whiskey in there. And that was the original intention to make a concealed <laughs> bourbon cabinet. But then, you know, I had guys working in the shop who served eight years in Iraq. He's like, screw that, man. You need to put guns in there. I didn't own any <laughs> guns. I own no guns. And then two weeks ahead, $5,000 later, you know, suddenly I had a shotgun. I had an AR. I had a, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? <laughs> but, you know, I told the lady, I said, I don't care what you put in there, you know? And I said a few things that I'm not going to say in the podcast, <laughs> but she was my first customer. <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh, she's funny, I did not man. see that coming. <laughs> what a plot I, did, twist. I did not see that coming. I just try to keep good roads, good weather. And I, and I understand the viewpoints and you know what? People have viewpoints and you can't really ignore them, but come on now, you know, we got to run a business too. So, yeah. Yeah. So the so rewind. So you had you built that first American flag, which wasn't a cabinet. It was just uh, just a flag. Yep. And then I then I did the cabinet, and you know I got I got the different guns and stuff, and I and I put it in there. And when I did the RFID card reader, and there's this thirty second video where it explains it and it pops open, and then suddenly it just went viral. I mean, people were like, Whew, you know, I wanted to make it out of something like really pretty. I didn't want to have stained wood or something low quality. I wanted to make the wood out of Paduke, which is an African wood. And I want to make it out of curly ambrosia maple and black walnut or, or the union is stained blue. We made that out of maple, but I wanted to give it a quality that was like when, when somebody looked at it or touched it, they were like, man, this is like super cool. And every single client that received it, you know, they, they were super happy with it, you know, just because of the quality as well. Well, it has this really interesting effect that I haven't seen anybody else do where it looks like the flag is blowing in the wind, but it's because of the way that you've contoured the top. I don't know how you do that, but it's pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah. We hand grind that, you know, there's another company who makes these flags, they make beautiful flags. And I guess one of the things that, that I, I wanted to have is that I didn't want to have any flags that's the same. Hmm. And it's a hell of a lot of work because the other company, I think, makes everything on the CNC machine mm -hmm. and the waves. And really hand grinding it, it's, it takes some... You got to do it early in the morning when the sun is on that side of the building. <laughs> we do it outside and, you know, you use a chainsaw and you use a chain wheel, which is like a pretty aggressive and abrasive tool. And then we hand grind it and then we sand it up to a high grid and then we, you know, spray the flag and it creates good effects. But not one single flag that we made was ever the same, ever. It's pretty cool that you can say that, you know? Well, even the product that, you know, we talked about scaling earlier and coming up with products that you can replicate, even your replicable products are still custom. Like there's still, yeah. there's no two that are built alike. That's fascinating. That's right. Like even if you cut the slabs out of the same log, it might look the same, 
at first, but to me, it's not. So it's all different, really. Well, you've proven pretty adept at using social media to to grow your business and drive your business. Did that come naturally? Did you fall into it? Was it intentional? Did you hire a, a firm or a fancy consultant to tell you what to do? How did all that come about? You know, I'm probably worse to tech. I can't remember my damn password on anything. <laughs> probably Google keeps me as the number one forgetting password person. <laughs> you know, some guy, there's a company called AGM agency, and he was my client. And I went to do a seminar, a workshop with him for three days. And one thing really stuck with me. He said, he said, uh, the, the number of posts and the consistency of it, what's going to build you the presence. And I didn't know fancy SEO and all these other pixels and spider webs and all these terms and stuff that people threw at me. And I was like, yeah, whatever, dude. But <laughs> But I, I, one thing I stayed consistent is LinkedIn because 80% of my work comes from LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And a cool thing is that when you're on LinkedIn, you know, you have a, you have a premium account, which is already, you've got to pay your 700 bucks a year, which is when you do it, then you consider it to be verified and professional. It's a great platform because there's a lot of designers, architects, hobbyists, chief of polices, Marines, veterans, colonels, generals, you name it. They all on LinkedIn. When you start posting the hashtags and you just do it consistently, you know it's going to reach somebody. So when I did a table that I hand cut, it was a Doftail table, one of the first very custom table that we made for a client in Atlanta, Georgia. I posted that video. It was 22 seconds long. And he had 136,000 views. Wow. Now it's like 164 or something. <laughs> but it's still growing. And when I saw that, I'm like, man, this is powerful. And all I do is pay 700 bucks a year. And it's really up to my personal ethics to be consistent at it. And I try to be very consistent at it. Every now and then a day or two falls out. Depends on the load in the shop. But you will find postings from me 10 o'clock at night or five in the morning, whatever, you know, but I know I have to do it because that's what builds our presence. And my wife started to do Instagram and Facebook, and she is actually my marketing director. And she started to connect with amazing branding companies in Miami. We became part of a, a mastermind group called the board of advisors where my 12-year-old son got to pitch Kevin Harrington on stage. That was pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. And then Kevin Harrington said, like, um, wow, who are the parents again? (laughs) (laughs) It It was a big accomplishment, you know. But anyway, so that's how I got into it. And I try to be consistent at it. No, I was not told or trained every day that this is what's going to put your name out there. But we try to do better. We try to do better videos. We try to hire people who can do videos for us. This particular agency, we did a project for them. They helped us to optimize our platforms, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means, really. <laughs> but they did it. So cool. They did it. What I know is that LinkedIn works and I like to be consistent at it. You know, we're not perfect and we're not making $50,000 videos, but 
you know, the basic datum of just put something out there that's consistent, it always helped us. Yeah. Well, you've, the consistency, I'm sure, has helped, but I don't think you would have done nearly as well if you didn't have just amazing product and process to share with people. So you, I Thank think you. that's the other thing too. That's It's got to come first. You got to have something worth sharing and you certainly do. And people are resonating with it. As we wrap up, how can people, erdadesigns.com is fantastic, but like what, if somebody wants to learn more, what would you tell them to, to learn more about Peter, your shop, your designs, some of your products? Uh, you can Google my name, ignore the, the police reports. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. You know, if you, if you just Google Peter Erdy or Erdy Designs, we have all of our availabilities there. Uh, they can reach us. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. We're not on Twitter yet. <laughs> I don't know how to work it. LinkedIn and Instagram is pretty strong. Facebook is pretty strong. It's very easy to find. I always answer my phone. If I don't answer my phone immediately, it's probably because I'm either in a spray booth or lifting something, whatever, but I always return calls. And we like people come to the shop and see the shop so they could, you know, experience it. And we actually starting a new really cool thing where we found out that people are actually interested coming in and buying a piece of furniture, but be involved in it. Hmm. So we had a client who did it. We are about to do uh, a testimonial with him. He can talk about it, but that's, that's another cool thing that's coming up that if you have the time, you're welcome to come in and work with us. Last sending for me. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, are you really careful about, I'm imagining you don't necessarily put the chainsaw in their hand when they come in. <laughs> no, not exactly. Not exactly. We do let them do the sanding and all that, but anything like really, major unless the person have like a substantial woodworking background we'll let him work on the other tools as well but yeah i think we have a pretty strong waiver (laughs) (laughs) well peter peter this has been fantastic we really appreciate you giving up such a good good chunk of your morning i know that you probably got plenty of projects in the shop and it's getting hot as we speak so i know time's at a premium so but thanks for Thanks for spending your morning with us. It's been really fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys because this this is great. I never really knew much about podcasts until maybe six months ago. And we have some pretty big companies out of Chicago wants to fly down here and do a live podcast, which I knew. Oh, cool. Be, but cool. You know, it's <laughs> great. And they have like 400,000 followers or listeners in 40 countries. So we're interested, we're interested in any way we could, one, create functional art for more and kind of keep this trade alive and, and really have people have some beautiful furniture that really lasts them a long time. Like we make dining tables, man, where their kids, kids going to be eating off. Of, mm. you know? And that's, that's, cool. that, that's kind of a cool thing to say, you know, that's great. Yeah. Well, thanks again, everybody check out Erday designs. We will link up all of those links, the YouTube channel, the Instagram, the Facebook, the website will all be in the show notes. And until next week, check out Peter and some of his cool stuff online. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate you. Thank you.